Here we go. April 3, 2011, lecture discussion number special request number five, I guess, is the way to uh, say it again since I've been following that. Or mostly what it'll be today is Judges 19, 20, 21. But I was asked to throw a little bit more of John 21 uh, back in the 153 fish. So I'll intend to do that. Now, admittedly, I am rushing through Judges 19, 20, and 21, as you should be well aware. And that is frustrating some of you, and I know that, and it's frustrating those who follow us on the Internet as well. They would like me to slow down and be a little bit more meticulous through it. Um, but there really isn't any practical way that I can uh, give judges uh, what, it's, what it's deserved and still maintain a semblance of, uh, of our Roman series. So uh, at the very best, I'll have to go back to the judges someday and just consider yourself uh, going through the introductory portion because of who? That's right, Misty. And that's the uh, way it is. I am, as those of you who have been here note, and, and if you haven't been here, I am answering special questions. And Misty had a question on judges. It fit in slightly with Romans because of King Saul. And so, therefore, I, uh, I put it in. And then I got a letter for the 153 fish in John 21. And so, since I was doing special requests, I thought I'd throw that in as well. And that's how we got here. But we're going to head back to Romans next week, if I can. Probably not. Uh, I've got over 5,000 words here today. And I'm still not into Judges 21. Um, so probably another week of judges, and that again is what? That's Misty's fault, that's right. So put Misty at the back of the buffet line, and especially since she won the contest. So I'm going to continue to move very fast, skipping what you will think is very important issues in my attempt to at the least get all of the questions on the table. And notice how I said that, get all of the questions on the table. Uh, you may notice that I repeat the questions, and that is by design. Why do I repeat the questions? Because I want to make sure you get all the questions. I am focusing on the questions. Why do I do that? Because I know that if you don't know the questions, uh, you're in a much more of a problem than not knowing the answers. It is okay to not know the answers. It is really a bad place to be if you do not know the questions. You can wrestle with, you can mull over, you can meditate your whole life trying to solve the deep things of God, trying to come up with answers, but being completely clueless about the questions, that's big wampum trouble. And so that's why I focus on the questions. Not even noticing what the questions are. That is uh, systemic now in the uh, modern-day contemporary church. We go through scriptures so fast we don't even know there's questions there. And then we run around bragging about how much of the Bible that we know. So not seeing the questions, not finding the questions, again, that is a place I don't wish for you to be. And I have devoted uh, the last 20 years of my life trying to fix as many of you as I can. No offense. So, I naturally focus, as I just said, getting out the questions. I want you to train yourself to constantly ask what as you read the Bible. What should, what, you're going to have one word, you're just going to have one word. What is it I want you to ask every time you read a verse? Why? That's exactly right. Ask why. Constantly ask why as you read scripture. And, and you'll have quite the opportunity here in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Lots of whys. Uh, we're done with 19 pretty much. I'm sorry that I didn't go uh, deep enough. Um, but I, again, I really am sorry this time. I would have liked to have spent more time doing it, but I can't. And uh, 
we're going to keep moving on 20 and 21. Hopefully, we'll get to 21 today. But there are lots of whys here in Judges 20 and 21. Probably uh, in the top 10 uh, Bible why places, if you will. Everywhere you want to ask why, the more whys you'll get, you'll get the most of them in Genesis 15. You'll get a lot of them in Matthew 4. If you're not going through Genesis 15, and by the time you're done with Genesis 15, if you don't have a hundred whys, you didn't read it, and you certainly didn't understand it. And the same thing's true in Matthew 4. That is the testing, not the temptation of Christ, the testing of Christ. If you don't know it's a testing, then you're already in, in knee-deep mud. You can't tempt God, can you? You can test to find out if he is God. You can test to find out if he is pure God, but you cannot tempt him. That is biblically illiterate. Now, last Sunday, I also went speeding through the 153 fish of John 21, much to the dismay of some of you, which proves what? It proves that I can't win. Yes, you heard Amanda giggle back there. First, I ask questions, right? I ask questions. And I don't provide answers. Judges 20. And everybody boos me. Especially Michelle. And that's okay. And then I give out a bunch of answers. Last week, John 21, 153 fish. I ask hardly any questions. Is everybody happy? No. Everybody boos. Especially Amanda. So... Obviously, I should be by now quite used to this, this persistent state of dissatisfaction, um, ever-present, probably a better adjective to describe the uh, typical class rebellion state here. And I am very much used to it. That's, that's the case. I'm used to it. The truth be told, I've become to actually enjoy it. <laughs> you know that, uh, don't you? In a twisted defense mechanism sort of way, I... I I like that. And so I'm doing it on purpose. In any event, long, long ago, I was made of way, oh, much aware of, of how my style frustrated people and how Cliffside would then, they would tell me, would call out those who wouldn't learn to pursue and examine and hunt, if you will, their way through the Bible. And I'm going to force you to do it. If you stay here, you should know that, right? I do not want you to be weak. If you're not asking questions, you're weak. I don't want you to be weak. I don't want you to take a baby bottle into a, into a sword fight. That's crazy. And I, I want you off of the soft milk and the pablum and the, and the uh, applesauce in a little jar. I want you to be able to put up a fight. I want you to have a, a, at least a 9mm, 14, 15 rounds. That's what I want. Flak vest. Don't come home in a body bag. As you, as you know, I taught high school a long time, and, and these kids would come back to me, and it was I was a math and science teacher primarily, but I was very, very discouraged to watch these kids in a Christian school come back devastated by some of the simplest stuff that an atheistic professor would throw in front of them, and it would wipe them out. And so that's what got me started, believe it or not. I will not... Solve things for you. That makes you weak. That makes you a boneless chicken. That's everybody gets a trophy type kind of thinking. And, and I won't do it. And besides, it's, it's obviously disrespectful. There is disrespect that is inherent in low expectations. I am not going to do that. I've never done it. Won't start now. 
And there is the equally obvious disobedience to God's commandment for teachers to equip and disciple. And I'm, like I said, I read that very carefully. There's an admonition there and an accountability there. Don't take uh, this uh, holy Lexan pulpit and dry erase marker uh, lightly. There's a price to pay for those who insist on entertaining their congregations, or in this case, their classes. That's 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, if you'd like to read that. I would advise you to read that and then try not to stand next to the guys who entertain at the great white throne. At least stand off to the side, you know, give 10, 12. God's a good shot, you'll be fine. Okay, let's revisit very fast. I'm going to repeat the 153 fish. I got this wonderful letter from a lady in Missouri, Karen Lincoln, and she wanted to know <coughs> about what the 153 fish in John 21 was all about. And I went through it really quickly last week, and I'll do it really quickly again this week, but hopefully by, by hearing it again, it'll clarify for some of you, and, uh, and you'll understand it this time. And if you don't understand it, what have I given you? I've given you the answer instead of the questions. So here I go again. I'm going to give you the answer. Why 153 fish in John 21? Are you ready? Here we go. The Gospel of John was written on what kind of pattern? It was written on a Passover pattern. So what do you have to know right off the bat? In order to solve the 153 fish, you must be an expert in something. What? You have to be an expert in the Passover pattern, which is, Mark just yells out, is the feast day pattern as well. Is the creation pattern. Is the crucifixion pattern. You have to be an expert in that now. You have to know what the Passover is. What is the Passover? Passover is when the Jews were in Egypt and they put the blood over the door. The firstborn of the Egypt, Egyptians was dead, but the Jews were passed over by the angel of death. Who was who, by the way? Who was that? That was Jesus Christ, yeah. The angel, capital angel. Anyway, that's how the Gospel of John is written. It's written on that Passover pattern. It starts with light, to give you an idea. John 1, 4 through 8 starts with light. Light comes. A light is lit, if you will. The light being lit is followed by what? John 2. What happens in John 2? Hmm? I have cleansing. That's right. I have cleans, cleansing of what? Of the temple. The purging of the temple. Those of you who know the Passover know what's the first couple of things I do in a Passover. Light a candle. Purge the sin from the house. Right. First two elements, if you will. Why did I'll go off on a tangent here just for fun? I have time. I get to add to the sermon because of the special presentation. Why did he cleanse the temple? What were they doing in there? They were selling salvation. Absolutely right. In order to get salvation, you had to buy a sacrificial lamb from them or a sacrifice that they approved, that they had stamped. That, by the way, solves your Hebrew 6 problem anyway. But forget about that for a second. You had to buy what they approved, what they inspected, what they said was worthy to be a sacrifice. So if you did that, if you gave them money, you could come in with your wonderful little lamb. They would inspect it. What would they find? 
Oh, it's got blemish. You can't use that one. You have to buy one of ours. That'll be $500. Thank you very much. Oh, you don't have it? Well, we'll sell you a bird. But you had to buy your salvation. And that made God, Jesus Christ, made him righteously angry. How come? Because you cannot buy salvation. You cannot earn it. The only thing free is the grace of God. You do not sell salvation by grace, by its very definition. Salvation is a gift. If you are selling salvation or demanding payment for salvation, you are committing apostasy. Anyway, the first two elements of the Passover order are beginning in the book of John, and then there are four Passover cups in John. There's four Passovers in John, and each one of them has a relationship to the cups of the Passover. We're going to do a Passover communion, as you know, in a couple of weeks, April 24th. And I'll probably cover the four cups at that point. But there are four cups in the Passover. There's four Passovers in John. They correspond to the cups, as I said last week. Again, those are John 2, 13. John 5, 1. John 6, 4. John 13, 1. Why did I go so slow? Because of Amanda. Look at her back there. Do it again, Amanda. Yay. Okay. You think I don't listen to you. John 2, 13, 5, John 5, 1, John 6, 4, John 13, 1. The four Passovers in the book of John. Some will say three, and unfortunately they're in error because they don't understand the Passover pattern. And I'm very sorry if, the, if you have the three Passover position. Not really fake sorry. But there's four cups there, and you need to know that. Anyway, John selected out from the many signs of Jesus that Jesus did. Jesus did thousands of signs. He selects how many? Seven. Why? Just wanted to pick seven. Seven seemed cool. Why seven? Why not eight? Why not six? Why not a thousand? He picks seven. Why? Because it's written on a Passover pattern. That's what he wants you to know. He selects out seven, and then he puts those seven into an exact order. As you know, the water into wine covered that last week. That's first. There's a reason it's first. Cracked vessels, pouring water that becomes wine, becomes blood. That is a picture of our resurrection, isn't it? And then the resurrection of Lazarus is seventh. And and you should go and look up those signs and, and figure them all out. I gave them last week to you. And notice the incredible story. They're individual pieces that make a whole. The seven is the whole. They're one-seventh of a whole. And they teach you a seven, if you will, a, a tremendous truth. And these seven, as I said, formed this Passover pattern, the creation week pattern, the Exodus 12 pattern. The Exodus 12 pattern is the one most commonly referred to as the Passover pattern, but you also have to look at the creation week. I have a lecture on sermonaudio.com that says Christ in creation, if you need to find out more about that. And uh, I was very encouraged the other day because I looked up my circumcision sermon because I root for it. Go circumcision sermon. I'm really proud of my Gibeonites, you know, bless their little hearts, and I really love them, and I love the circumcision stuff, and as you know, that makes me, yeah, that makes me weird, but uh, I root for it, and I check it every now and then to see if anybody else is what? Weird, yeah, and there now there's about 60 of them <laughs> all over the world. There's 60 just like me. That makes me happy. 
I want to meet them. We could sit around and talk about circumcision for days. It'd be cool. Hey, let's get together for lunch. Talk about circumcision. As you know, circumcision, very important. It is the sign of grace. It is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the sign uh, that salvation is a gift and cannot be earned and cannot be bought and cannot be sold. Anyway, where was I? Exodus 12 pattern. Four days. The lamb is brought in for four days. It's killed on the fourth day at three o'clock. The next day or that night, the Passover of the uh, of Israel and the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And then the next day is unleavened bread and they leave on unleavened bread and they go three days and three nights. They get to the Red Sea and they cross over on the feast, feast day of first fruits. So I have three feast days, three high Sabbaths in that week. Plus I have a weekly Sabbath. So I have four Sabbaths in the Passover pattern week. How many Sabbaths do you think I have in the crucifixion week? I have four as well. That's the mistake everybody makes. Everybody thinks there's only one Sabbath. They think there's only a weekly Sabbath. What do we call that? Brain damage. We call that. And I feel really badly for people who haven't figured that out. They want a three-day weekend. It's not. It's a seven-day pattern. And if you have a Friday crucifixion position, you can't defend it. You can't defend it. And I'm sorry. Not really. So, there's your three of the seven feast days in that pattern. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. And you've got to know how they fit and how they are set in those seven days. And John wrote his gospel in this pattern. He followed a Passover pattern. He used it as a template for his, his, his gospel. And he did it to prove to us that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, creator God in the flesh, and that Jesus Christ was also meticulously following this seven-day template, this pattern. It's God's Pattern. Everything Christ did had this Passover pattern somewhere within, especially so was the crucifixion week. He, as I say over and over and over again, I can lay the crucifixion week right on top of the Exodus 12 week. They fit exactly the same. That's how I know you don't have a Friday crucifixion. I know you can't get two and a half million people to the Red Sea in 12 hours by foot carrying goats and chickens and old people. That would be me. I don't move so fast. And I fall off of ladders and I fall out of, out of wagons. It's been a trucks, really. Okay. Also hidden, by the way, and what hidden within what Christ did, uh, as some of you know, most of you know, is the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Inside of Christ's ministry, you find the Passover pattern, you find the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony pattern, and, and that's associated with the feast day of trumpets, that's Rosh Hashanah, that's the fifth day of the seven feast days, and um, you just need to know when you read things like, I go to prepare a place for you, that comes out of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. He just didn't say that arbitrarily, and as soon as he said it, everybody knew that's out of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Everyone knew. We think, oh, well, must have, he must be going someplace. What's he doing? He's quoting word for word the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. When he says only the Father knows, he's quoting the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. He's omniscient God. 
Did you think he doesn't know? He's trying to tell you the answer to your question. They asked him to question, didn't they? Find out what the question was. Questions are very important. He answers with the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Need to know that. See me for that later. Maybe I'll repeat that lecture someday soon. It's been a while. How many of you were here when I did the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? You can raise your hand without fear. Okay, six or seven. How about to do it better? How many have never heard of the Hebrew betrothal ceremonies, 12 steps in pattern? Okay, that's pretty, pretty scary. So I got to do that because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Christ is saying. When he says things that, that appear to be uh, cryptic, they are actually out of that ceremony. And, and if you know it, then when you read, uh, read it, uh, John includes that a lot as well. But mainly he's on the Passover pattern, quite a bit of Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So get all that figured out, you'll be fine. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Passover. John is pounding in the Passover pattern. Every single page of the book of John, Passover pattern. And so if you don't know the Passover pattern, how you doing? Not so good. You're coming out of that book with all kinds of problems and a lot of errors because you don't know why he's writing it the way he is. You don't know what you don't know. And he concludes his gospel with what? What's he conclude his gospel with? He writes his Passover, 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 Passover. What's he concluded with? 153 fish. He says, listen, if you can't figure out these seven signs, if you can't figure out what those seven signs mean, and you can't figure out that from those seven signs is a Passover pattern, and you can't figure out that those seven signs as a whole prove that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, Creator, God in the flesh, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, if you can't get it from there, then, oh golly, you're, 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 how can I help you? Oh, I got it. I got something that will prove it to you because I can't convince you with this. I'll give you something easy. I'll give you 153 fish. There. It's proven now. And as I said last week, for generations, people have not figured out the 153 fish. Well, if he's going Passover for his whole book and, and then he comes up with 153 fish, what do you think the 153 fish is? It is more Passover. So if you separate the Passover out of the 153 fish, you'll never figure out the 153 fish. 153 fish equals more Passover. It's God, because of the seven and the ten. Two of the four perfect numbers, right? The seven and the ten, the seventeen. Seven plus ten, seventeen. Seventeen is the uh, uh, largest. It is the, one of the factors of 153. Three and seventeen. Three squared and seventeen. And it's a prime number, the 17th prime number. I did all of that. If you add 1 plus 1, or 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6, all the way up to 17, you get 153. That's not an accident. That's how it works. And he's trying to tell you this is God's plan in God's order. Christ says, put your net over there. You're going to get a Passover pattern. And if you study the Passover pattern, then every one of you knows something now. You know that I'm God in the flesh. And you know what this is all about. The seven and the ten. You got to know the death of the firstborn. That's the tenth plague, right? Of the ten plagues. And, and that starts the seven that ends in the crossing of the Red Sea. And you got to understand the crucifixion week is the same. And you got to know the sign of Jonah. 
And then you put Lazarus with Jonah. You've got to know that Jonah died and was resurrected. You can't have this silly idea that he was writing letters to home inside the belly of the fish. My goodness. You got that from a Disney show. You got that from Pinocchio. Now, you really think Pinocchio got that right? Read it, for goodness sakes. So, I answered it again. He didn't ask you any questions. I gave you the answer. You ready for your test on the 153 fish? Hmm, some of you think. So if you didn't figure it out, then feel free to boo. But let me reiterate just a little bit. I'm going to ask the right question. What's the right question about the 153 fish? Why did John end his gospel with 153 fish and then the three questions to Simon Peter, who he called what? Simon Peter, son of Jonah. Oh, sign of Jonah. He, John ends his incredible proof with the 153 fish and the three questions to Simon Peter, son of Jonah. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And you'll see all kinds of nonsense on this. Uh, just buckets of dump trucks filled of nonsense where they try to make each love mean something different and it's a different word and they run around like chickens and bless their hearts. They get nowhere close to it. Those are three questions. And twice Simon, son of Jonah, answers wrong. Only on the third attempt does he get it right. And after he gets it right, then Christ, God, changes Twice Simon, son of Jonah, answers, you know I love you, and that's the wrong answer. And what does God do as soon as you get the wrong answer? What does he do? It's a wonderful thing he does. If you get the wrong answer and you don't know what you're doing, if God asks you a question, you answer it wrong, what's he keep doing? He keeps asking the same question over and over and over again. And what did Simon, son of Jonah, know? I got it wrong. I got to get it right. Finally, he gets it right. He finally declares, Lord, you know all things. What's that? What do you mean? You're omniscient. Who are you then? Who is God if he's omniscient? He's God. You declare Jesus Christ to be omniscient. You're declaring him to be God. Peter declares Christ to be God by saying that. And as soon as he does, that's the what? That's the right answer. And Christ now moves on. And he puts him into service. Places Simon into service. He's restored. And he gives him the prophecy of his death. And then he gives him this wonderful command. As soon as you know that Jesus Christ is omniscient God, then what do you get to do? Christ tells you, follow me. If you don't know that, then he keeps asking you questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? If you stand up here and say to me, I love Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you, is he omniscient God? If you go, no, he's mostly a human. He's scared a lot. He doesn't know what he's doing a lot. He doesn't know things. If you give me that, what am I going to keep doing? I got the patterns there in John 21. I'm going to keep asking you. Do you love Jesus Christ? If you love Jesus Christ, then you say that he is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. Now you love him. Now what? With that information, you can go into service. Otherwise, whew, ain't going good for you.
So the correct, the correct question is, you've got to know the question, why does John end his gospel with 153 fish and the typology of Simon, son of Jonah? He follows the Passover pattern with a Passover pattern, 153 fish, and then he ends it with Israel typology because Peter is a picture of Israel there, just as he is when he tries to walk on the water, just as he is when he denies Christ three times, right? So the three times denial and the three times do you love me fit together. Israel is restored. It's a picture of the restoration of Israel as well as the individual restoration of Simon Peter, a literal actual event that has great hidden deep significance, right? So ask that question. Why does John end his Passover gospel with his Passover 153 fish and then follow it with the typology or the restoration of Israel? What does Israel not know today? They do not know that Jesus Christ is creator God. They do not know that and they do not have any idea that it's even close to what's true. But when do they learn it? They learn it at the end of what? A Passover pattern. What is that Passover pattern called? The tribulation. Very good. Another seven. So ask that question. If you ask that question, you'll figure out the Simeon prophecy, why Simeon carried the uh, crossbeam of Christ, why Simeon, the prophet, held up the Christ child, why, why Simeon was put in prison by Joseph, why Simeon was asked these three questions, why Simeon denied Christ three times. You put the Simeon prophecy together and you won't have any more Silly ideas about the crucifixion. Okay, done with that. Was that too fast, Amanda? Okay, much much better. Now we'll try to fix Michelle. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) Okay, we left last left our judge's story, and there it is on the board. If you haven't read it, that's uh, Judges uh, 19, a little bit of 20, um, typed out for us, or I mean listed out for us. Um, and, um, and we ended with the first day last week, the first day, and go to go ahead and go to Judges 19. And as I said, we ended with the first day where the tribe of Judah was uh, uh, slaughtered on the battlefield. Uh, Judah went first, and they were slaughtered on the battlefield. The sons of Belial, or your Bible might have the perverted ones, but it really literally means the sons of Belial. That's the actual Hebrew, and that means the sons of Satan. They allied with the Benjamites, and they cut down 22,000 of Judah when Judah came to uh, to get the, the wickedness out of the Benjamite tribe. And the Benjamites cut, on, cut down 22,000, and they had hardly any losses. So the Belial-Benjamin forces um, maybe lost a few hundred. If that, you make the case they didn't even lose that. And Israel went up after that horrible defeat, and they went up because God tells them, by the way, they, they asked uh, who should go first. And God says, Judah, go first. And Judah goes, so God says, Israel gets before God, and they say, we have to do this because of the incredible wickedness. There's just incredible wickedness here. We have to go. We have to rise up. We have to take out these 700 sons of Belial. We have to take out now the tribe of Benjamin that defends them. Who should go first? God says, Judah goes first. How confident are they? That's the correct question, right? Got to ask the right question. If God said to us, cliffside first, 
And we run out in the parking lot, and we're all wiped out, except for George and Linda. And they come back, and they weep bitterly. All the cliffside people are dead in the parking lot. We don't even get out the door. We're shot dead at the door. It's a big pile of dead cliffside bodies. How would we feel? Who told us to go first? It's right there. Uh, 2018, the Lord said Judah first. Judah goes out and is slaughtered on the battlefield and the Benjamites hardly even struck. And they went up and they wept before the Lord until evening. And we need to repeat, reread that, so we will. Here's Judges 20, verse 23. Okay? Then the children of Israel, after this great slaughter of Judah first, which God sent Judah first. And by the way, you now have to ask the questions. Why did God say Judah first and then they go out and get slaughtered? Did God know they would go out and get slaughtered? Yes, he's God, duh. He's omniscient God. So why did he let them be slaughtered? What's the answer? Do you want me to answer it? Passover pattern. Okay? Find the Passover pattern. That's why John wrote the gospel the way he did. Here we go. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gebeah. Then the children of Benjamin came down out of Gebeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites, and the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. We did what you said. You said Judah first, and we got 22,000 of them dead. And ask counsel of the Lord. Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? This is Israelite tribes, 11 tribes against, if you will, 11 against this one. And the Lord said, go up against him. Now, right there, Judges 20, 23, two incredible questions fly off the page and whoop you upside the head, or I hope it does. And if you can find these, then the others, of which there are so many, what are we fighting for? What caused this big mess? Then the others, of which there are so many, overwhelming number of questions, difficult question after difficult question, and, and it's easy to get buried in this one. But if you find Judges 2023, and if you've been doing your John 539, what's your John 539? Somebody answer, please. Encourage the teacher. What's your John 539? I'll try again. Search for Christ on every page of the Old Testament. So if you find Judges 20. 23, and you add to it your search for Christ on every page of the Old Testament, a commandment in John 5.39. Why did John make sure he wrote that down? Because Christ commanded us to do it. Why do you think John said that? He could have said, picked anything Christ said. There are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of things that Christ said. John made sure you had 5.39. Search the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament is to testify of me, Jesus said. Testify of Christ. So you have your Judges 2023 here where God says, go up against him. And the children wept. And then add your John 539. And then and only then all these other questions that are in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Only then will they become manageable and the answers fall into place. So let's take a look here again. 
Let's look at this. I'll read Judges 19.1 again. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now I'll read Judges 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There is no king in Israel. That's how we start this thing. And there is no king in Israel. That's how we end this thing, if you will. The Judges 19, 20, and 21 are surrounded by, are booked in parentheses by there is no king in Israel. Everything is in a no king in Israel context. So what's the obvious question? Why? What does no king in Israel have to do with this? In those days, no king in Israel. This true, actual, literal event, people, historical, begins and ends with this. In those days, no king in Israel. And that is a very important piece, critical piece. Obvious question, as I said, why does this gruesome murder of this woman, primarily in Judges 19... And the subsequent massacre of the Benjamites, primarily in Judges 20 and 21, the Benjamites almost ex exterminated because they defend the wickedness of the sons of Belial. Why is this ordered by God, the Shekinah glory, the light himself? See, he orders it. Go up against him, Judah first. He orders it. God orders it. This is the Shekinah glory, the light himself, who is above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the Mosaic tabernacle, and it has a beginning and an ending with this phrase, there is no king in those days in Israel. So, what's the obvious question now? Let's just start with this. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that there's no king in Israel? How many vote bad thing? How many vote bad? It's bad. It's... How many vote good? How many know not to raise your hand in this class ever? ever? Okay, there's one in the back. Good. Two, two, three. Good for you. Before, you should know that all the commentators, Bible scholars are almost unanimous here. They conclude that it's a bad thing. Very bad that there is no human king in Israel. That's very bad. Really? Really that's bad? Look at what they get to do. They go up to God and they say, who gets to go first? Judah goes first. Should we keep fighting? Keep fighting. As soon as he said, keep fighting, what did they do? It's amazing what they did. They just lost 25, 22,000 men slaughtered. What did they do? God says, go up against him again. And they do it. How obedient is that? How would you like to be in the group? Yeah, they knew something. This is what God wants. Now, what's the next obvious question? huh? Why does God want him to do this? That's very important. But really, is it really bad that the, that the throne is empty? Is the throne empty? No. Who's on the throne? Who is over the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy of Holies? What does he look like? He's, he's the Shekinah glory. He's this brilliant light. He's the primal, the first light. And he's there. And you can send the high priest in, and he can talk to him. That's pretty cool. That's a red phone. Why wouldn't you want that? You want what instead? See, I am once again in the minority. I say the opposite, that it's a bad thing. I say that it's a good thing that God himself is over the throne of Israel, over the throne in the Holy of Holies. I ask, what would happen if he wasn't there? This happened and he is there. What would have happened if he wasn't there? 
It seems quite obvious to me, by the way, (coughs) that this is the exact condition of the millennial rule of Jesus Christ, isn't it? This is revelation, isn't it? Jesus Christ will come and sit on the throne in Israel in the Holy of Holies, and we're going to have a millennial rule with Satan in uh, the abyss. Is there sin? Yes. Why? So it's obvious to me that we have this condition again, and I think it's good that Christ is the king over the earth. And once again, God, the Shekinah glory in the flesh on the throne. I think that's a good thing. This time he's not in the flesh. He is just the primeval light. And we should read, by the way, what God himself has to say about the human-only kings of Israel, replacing him as king of Israel, because he talks about it. Uh, let's go to uh, Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, where God is replaced by Israel. And we'll read them both. 1 Samuel 8, 4. Then all the elders gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So Samuel didn't do a very good job, did he? Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be just like all the Gentile nations. We don't want to be like Israel anymore. We want to be just like, just like Canada. I'm not being, not being disrespectful. We want to be just like France. Again, I have people in both places that listen to me. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They wanted a human king. Who did they pick, by the way? Who was picked? They wanted the best-looking guy they could get that was the tallest. 1 Samuel 10, 18 through 19. And they and said to the... Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your clan. And Saul, a Benjamite, a Gibeon from Gibeah, I'm sorry, a Benjamite from Gibeah, is chosen to be king. That's how it all fits together. They're clearly demanding a human-only king, and that is a rejection of the glory of God. And Israel rejects the glory of God as king, once instead a mere human being as a a created uh, a creature instead of the creator. And there's the irony of all of that. huh? On one hand, I've said this many times, I'll say it again. On one hand, they said, we don't want the Shekinah glory. We want a human king over us. And what does God do in Matthew 12? He comes as a, as a human, and he is the Shekinah glory. Opens himself up, Matthew 17, transfiguration. That is the Shekinah glory that was over Israel, and it's now in human. It's in flesh. He is the God-man. First, they rejected him because he was the primeval Shekinah glory. And then they what in Matthew 12? They reject him because of what? He's human. 
That's very important to know that. Matthew 12 plus Samuel, what well, 1 Samuel 8 plus 1 Samuel 10. The rejection of the Messiahship of Christ uh, and the rejection of the Shekinah glory fit together. Your New Testament, Old Testament complement. Okay. What happens in Judges 19, 20, and 21? A great, exceedingly wicked event occurs, but a good thing. God is on the throne, and so that evil is opposed. The nation of Israel has got himself over the mercy seat, and they rise up against the sons of Satan, the sons of Belial. Had a human-only king been there when this very wicked thing was done, no such deed had been done or seen. That's how wicked it is when this very, very evil thing was done. Had Saul, for example, a Benjamite from the very city that it occurred at, what would have happened to the evil then? Would it have been opposed? No. The evil would have grown and the evil would have consumed perhaps the entire nation and then the entire world, but God stops it again. God stops it again. It is what God does. And God sends Judah first. And what happens to Judah? They die. The first day, Judges 20, 23. And God says, go up against the evil a second day. So he's going to send Israel up a second day. Judges 20, I'm sorry, 2018, now 2023. And they die. And then God says, go up against the wickedness a third day. And after three days, the sons of Satan, okay, let me say it differently. After three days, Satan is defeated. What is that? That's a Passover pattern, isn't it? That's the resurrection pattern, which is a Passover pattern. And we should expect that, should we not? God intervenes, God defeats Satan and his allies, Judges 20:35. God defeated Benjamin before Israel. That's what he says. And it wasn't and Judah, the lion of Judah goes first. Would we expect that? Yes, Judah. The lion of Judah, the firstborn Christ. And Judah isn't the firstborn by the way. That's another complicated story. You got to go back to Genesis to figure that out. But Judah goes first. Christ is the firstborn. He is the first into the Jordan River. The ark would go into the Jordan River and then the people would go through. The ark is a picture of Christ. Christ baptized in the exact spot the ark went across, the exact spot where the axe handle was raised by Elisha. That's where he goes into the Jordan River that descends from the city of Adam, Joshua 3. It is uh, descending into the Dead Sea. So the descender of death and judgment into the Dead Sea, Christ goes first into the middle of it. There's your typology picture, right? He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So there's your John 5:39. And remember rule four of the five rules for reading scripture. When God, Jesus Christ, same thing, comes in judgment and people die, what is that? What is that? That's a good thing. That has to happen. You always ask, what if he didn't do it? What would have happened? If he feels he has to do it, that's a good thing. See, because great sin is being committed 
So we know something unbelievable happened with this woman. Something unbelievable because we got God saying, Judah first, go up again, go up again. And it took, he has a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to defeat whatever was going on with the sons of Belial. He's confronting extreme wickedness and he is protecting his truth of salvation. Never, never, never think that God could have waited longer or that there was some other solution. That would be blasphemy. He has to come. God is always good. And when he comes like this, evil is running amok in a way that we have no idea. We cannot even imagine. Okay? Our questions so far. Let's repeat them. What happened to this murdered woman? What happened to her? How did the cutting her into 12 pieces convey to the tribes of Israel what happened to her? Why did the Benjamites, they knew what happened to her, and they said what? We're going to fight on the side of the guys that did it. Because why? What could possibly make them do that? What did they hope to gain? Why would they go against God who is where? He's right there. They can see the light come out of the tabernacle. The tent of Moses. It's bright. Consider that for a second. I'm. It's a, it's a slow day. I think I will go fight God. What the heck are you thinking? What's going on with you? What could make you do that? Who does things like that? Huh? Who does things like that? Will it happen again? Why in the world would human beings congregate together and attack God with what? I was telling the story to somebody. I think it was uh, one of the flying Lorenzos. I said the, the, the... the Germans came through with their tigers and their panzer tanks and they were attacked by men on horseback with swords and knives. The equivalent would be, as I've said many times, going out in a canoe with a pea shooter against the USS Ronald Reagan. What what are you thinking? And, And that's not the equivalent. That's just something we can imagine. What did the Benjamites hope to gain? Don't go by the clock because I got... Miles to go here. What did they hope to gain? Why would they go against God on the ark? Are they insane? I wrote that. What did the sons of Belial promise them? What did, I got 700 guys. The Benjamites had, imagine the meeting. Hey, we got this in the mail, FedEx. It's a piece of a woman. Look at it. What did you do to that? Well, we know what you did because we can see what you did. We got a piece of evidence. And they're coming to kill you. And what do the sons of Belial do? The 700. Hey, fight on our side. Really? What do you got to offer? How did they, what did they promise them? Did they say, hey, if we fight on your side, Benjamin, we're going to win. We're going to kill every tribe. They can't get us. How did it go for a while? First couple of days. Looked like the sons of Belial were right. And we'll read that story next week. It looked like the sons of Belial, those 700 guys in that tribe of Benjamin could kill everybody. Hardly anybody would die. They lost less than a 1,000 men in two days. And they killed almost 50,000. 
And what made you think the third day would be any different? Here's why. Go up tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hands. But what was promised? Did they think they would really have victory over God? Who could fall for this kind of craziness? Well, read Revelation 19.19. The beast and all of the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against Jesus Christ and his army. How's that going to go for the beast and his useful idiots? I mean, he knows they're not going to win. So I always ask the sons of Belial, no, they weren't going to win either. Why did they fight? But back to what was promised. Then to the Benjamites and what will be promised soon. You see, because there's always a counterfeit to the truth, isn't there? I have a perfect lie. Let me ask you, what do the believers in Christ, what are we promised by Christ if we are in his army? If you sign up for the Christ army, what are we promised? Good health care? Yeah. What else do we get? Yeah, good retirement? That's really good. Something to do? What else? Yeah? Never get tired? We're promised eternal life. So what does the counterfeit promise? What did the sons of Belial promise? They had the promise eternal life, didn't they? See, what, what are the believers in Satan, in the Satan king? If we're promised by the God king, what does the Satan king promise? They're also promised eternal life, but it's a lie. They do get eternal existence, but it's not life as God defined it. They're deceived into eternal death in the sense that they're, they're immortal into death. Anyway, I've got to read these scriptures. I know I'm pushing you. I know it. It's, it's whose fault? We can't blame Misty anymore. I have to blame, say, Amanda. But let's go to Leviticus 17.10. You want answers? Here comes your answers. 17.10, Leviticus. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Somehow those pieces were evidence that something was going on with the blood. You know they're going to do the opposite of what God says, right? And there it is. Strangers who dwell among you, the life of the flesh is in the blood. God will set his face against these that eat blood. Those are strong words. Why would anyone eat blood? How many mythologies do we have about human beings that eat blood? They're really popular today. Ask any teenage girl, right? What do you get if you eat blood in the mythology? You don't die. You get a really bad place to sleep, lots of dirt. What kills you? Light. Yeah, a wooden stick. What else? Holy water, living water. See, the mythologies 
These guys don't write anything new. They steal it out of Scripture and then turn it into junk. But why would anyone eat blood? What are they thinking? Do you see the counterfeit communion forming here? Obviously, the evil among us would notice Leviticus 17, 10 through 11, and again, Leviticus 7, 26 through 27. And they would see that the life is in the blood. And what would they think? What would they do? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, we will read Mark 13, 17 now. Hang on. A few more answers to go. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Does that remind you of anything that we have just read? That is very similar to the language of Judges 19, isn't it? Some think that this is a fleeing problem. That's not not so. Pay attention, not since... This is actually not a fleeing problem. In other words, some think that they'll just be slow running, and that's the problem. No, the problem isn't that they're slow running. The problem is Hosea. And Hosea, by the way, is a picture of a woman that leaves her husband. And so it fits very, very well with Judges 19. So let's go to Hosea uh, 13, verse 16. Very important scripture in the Bible. And it is attached to Mark thirteen seventeen. Okay, and here it goes. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. Now that's in Israel and it's talking about the rebellion of Israel against God. And this is an end times prophecy. They shall fall by the sword. In other words, the Antichrist is coming for them. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. That is what God is saying in Mark 13, 17. It's not good to be pregnant, a pregnant Jewish woman at the time of the tribulation. Great evil is coming. It happened at Genesis 6. It happened at Sodom. It happened at Judges. I'm sorry, it happened at the Tower of Babel, and it happened at Judges 19, and it will happen to the nation of Israel at the tribulation. More seeker-sensitive women being ripped open and their children more or children ripped out. More seeker-sensitive, warm, fuzzy sermon next week. Invite your friends. Let's, let's stand and be dismissed.